Boat Talk is brought to you in part by Captain Yo's Flaming Fish Performance Models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. It's 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague is up next. Good morning, good morning. That's our friend Schooner Fair right there piping in Boat Talk, which happens on the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock until 11, with your rusty anchors Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, uh, two, uh, two old guys who uh, occasionally, when we're building boats, wonder if it takes stern measures to make a transom. Yeah. So I'm nodding. I'm nodding. Yeah. That's a good one. Certain yeah. measures, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, I used that one last month, but I went, uh, both uh, Giffy and Hart were just not prepared for punning, and they... they went right by them. Went by, yeah. Yeah. So I figured that was valid enough to use it again. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, you know, honor Alan and his uh, forms of humor, humor so... Uh, on a good day, a, a good pun is not the lowest form of humor, but some people will allege that. Well, yes, yeah, some people do uh, yeah, turn up their noses. Is it? Yeah. I was just thinking we could have found a copy of the Marseillaise this morning for our theme music. Well, it is Bastille Day, too. Yeah, it's Bastille Day, yeah. and it's going to be a very French day on the coast of Maine. Uh, the uh, recreated French uh, frigate warship Hermione will enter Castine uh, Hopefully this afternoon is on its way from Boston right now. Yeah, I just yeah. Uh, uh, AIS is a term that's going to come up, I think, fairly often during this this show. Automatic uh, uh, identification identification system. system yes, yeah. um, a lot of big boats, I think, commercial boats, I think, believe all have to have them, and it's a voluntary thing if you want to put them on your own private boat. But Le Hurion has one, and you can go online and uh, find out where it is by its. Uh, Last position broadcasted, I went online just about 10 minutes ago and found out that it was about 10 miles south of Rockland right now, headed towards Castine Motoring. Yes. Yes. And if you uh, have a chance to see uh, the, uh, what's the uh, June, uh, May-June edition of Wooden Boat Magazine number 244, they have a lovely uh, multi-page story on the frigate Hermione. And the best picture in there is of the propellers for this boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, mind you, this is a recreation of a 1780s French frigate. But back aft, on the back end of that boat, uh, are two big pod, blue pods. And these are rotating propeller pods on either side of the rudder. They're powered by a 300-kilowatt generator. And the boat will make uh, uh, six, eight knots under power. Um, they they pivot, rotate like a tugboat drive. Mm-hmm. And imagine, just imagine if if uh, the French Navy had that. 
back in the day, okay? They could give the British the yeah. best broadside. You could always be Spin on their butt, yeah. fart in their other general direction, and head off directly into the wind away from danger, you know? And, yeah. and probably uh, we'd all be, uh, who was that guy? Uh, the emperor there, Napoleon, would probably oh. have ruled the world. And, and yeah. uh, well, I wouldn't have to practice bonjour bateau, uh, <laughs> you know? Uh, we'd all be speaking French. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a pretty cool rig they have in there. But, of course, it's um, uh, historically was rebuilt. It took them uh, 12, 15 years to rebuild the thing. It's an amazingly intricate boat when you start looking at it. Yeah. And heavily built because it's a warship um, uh of a scale just uh, uh, a notch up from from your average square rigger's warship. So it's coming into Castine this afternoon, so anybody who is interested might want to uh, consider going down there. I know there's going to be a lot of people going by boat, and it's uh, going to be a pretty densely populated area, I think, for a while. But The waterfront's buzzing a little bit down there. Um, they have uh, gone through all kinds of schemes about how to tie the thing to the town pier when it's way too big uh, to, strictly speaking, be tied to the town pier. And uh, among other things, they were going to anchor it off the town pier and at one point, uh, they were thinking of even, uh, even Mediterranean mooring it to the town pier with its uh, stern in, mm-hmm. nose out, broadside to the casting four-knot current on the Taz. Yeah. They've uh, now decided to uh, they're going to try a parallel parking, and they have strung chains along the bulkhead on the shore which will be the tie points mm-hmm. um, anywhere that is necessary. They'll be able to tie off to the chain, which is, again, uh, fastened securely to the land. And yeah. um, We'll have to see. It, it all depends. Uh, they have to have some big fenders. Well, again, and the boat is uh, uh, making good progress. Uh, they want to do this at dead slack water in Castine. There's a big tide in Castine. It's a very difficult harbor um, for boating in general. And... The legend of Castine is is that Commander Dudley Saltonstall, the American in charge of the 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 um, warships at the Penobscot expedition in 1779, would not go into the harbor, would not sail his boats into the harbor for two reasons. One, he was going to get hit with cannonballs, and even if he won, he was going to get damaged. A bit, uh, yeah, you know. a hard time turning. And the other and was, he, his quote was, "I'm not taking my ships in that damn tide hole." Mm-hmm. And the tide that runs out of the Bagadoos uh, is is considerable, up to four well, knots. And, yeah, it's river-induced, too. And even with a modern engine, you've got your hands full sometimes docking a boat in Castine. And uh, so anyway, it's gonna all predicated on dead low water. The schedule looks good. I wonder what the good. captain's thinking about this, too. He's got those, like you say, the two uh, propellers, pause, I, I believe they can be aimed independently of each other. To sort, yeah, they, yeah, they rotate, yeah. yeah. Um, so they've gonna, been touring America. They've tied her up a couple of times before. You kind of yeah, hope for... Uh, yeah, not tides like this. This yeah. will be interesting. But it's a volunteer crew. Castine's the smallest place it's come to. Um, as far as crowds go, um, um, yes, uh, everybody and his brother's trying to get on uh, different boats and out on the water. But as far as people coming from shore, uh, everybody I talk to... If they're aware of it, thinks it's this weekend for some reason, and uh, so it may not be. Well, that may be confusion with the tall ships uh, 
convention or whatever you want to call it is happening in Portland. Exactly. This yes. Weekend. Exactly right. Because I've been told by many people that Hermione is going to Portland. And it's uh, not. No, no. It's not. So yeah. different tall ships are. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not this weekend in Castine. It's this afternoon. And tomorrow, when it may be rainy a little bit, might be even a better uh, day to get a. Oh, that's true. You know, and again, different watercolor uh, yeah. painting on the waterfront. <laughs> um, and. We expect it to be a site sitting yeah. at the foot of the main street. In Have you seen the website for the Hermione? No, I haven't looked at oh, it. Oh, no. it's very interesting. It's, it's Hermione two fifteen or two thousand fifteen. Hermione, no, no L in front of it. Hermione two thousand fifteen dot com, and there's lots of good information and great pictures in that one. So yeah. And, I think of uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. He came over on the original, and he was 21 years old. He was some rich and good-looking. Yeah. He was looking for adventure, and he made his name. He made it. <laughs> he made his name, and by all accounts, I'm reading about the Revolution a little bit recently, and, and uh, he handled troops well a couple of times at the end of the Revolution. I, you know, he was competent on the battlefield. and um, As an aside, this last weekend up to Fort uh, George in Castine, Maine, was a Revolutionary War rein, uh, encampment, reenactors encampment. And I went up there on Saturday afternoon and hung out first with the Americans. They were making meat pies on their side of the field. And uh, uh, they're wearing like, um, oh, knickers, you know, and it was all period dress, uh, period everything. Uh, but on the other side of the field, the British were wearing kilts. Huh. And having my own kilt, uh, you know, was kind of sympathetic of the British side. They were roasting a pig, mm -hmm. and uh, they had their Jeep Wranglers parked next to their tents because they had parking <laughs> issues with the security at the, at the Maritime Academy. But um, it was pretty cool, and these are all people from central Maine, and they know their history, and they were uh, fun, interesting people huh. I found, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be a little leery of kilts nowadays with all the ticks around. <laughs> oh, man, it was warm afternoon. It's the way to go. Ooh. And uh yeah, time tripping a little bit down to Castine, which is cool because the place is just chock full of history. Yeah, yeah. it certainly is. Yeah. So we are doing boat talk this morning. and uh, yeah, Oh, that's right. It is a call-in show, too. Yeah. We should probably tell people about that. Yeah, uh, we have a, uh, a hope of talking uh, to our friend Steve Rappaport from the Ellsworth American at the end of the program. He'll be uh, meeting uh, Lermion uh, on the press boat today and then boarding it. One of the few people that will actually get to board it, mm -hmm. um, and he's going to interview the captain later today. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so we'll hope to speak to him at the end of the program. What else you got going? Um, well, the phone number for anybody else who has anything that they'd like to talk about, anything else, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight is the number to give us a call into the studio. Uh, there, uh, interesting news I got from G Captain just a couple of days ago. Um, in the middle of the Pacific, I guess there are a few random islands uh, out there in the in the great middle, um, and Five fishermen in a 14-foot uh, skiff left from one of these islands with no motor, very little provisions, and no safety equipment to go fishing, and uh, somehow got caught in the currents or winds or something and were blown adrift 100 and almost 200 miles away from their island. And lucky, lucky for them, the Coast Guard happened to be flying over, and they spotted this little skiff down in the water and uh, reported uh, their location to... A boat that they used AIS, again, here's that AIS thing. They used AIS to find a, uh, a ship that was in the area and diverted it to uh, pick up these uh, five uh, 
unlucky fishermen. Well, actually, they were very lucky, really, but they they were adrift for five days before they were picked up by this Panamanian bulk freighter that was headed to uh, Korea. That's an old story. There's a um, uh, TV show on NBC that's been running this uh, spring and summer. I, I only got to see it once in a little bit other. Uh, it's called The Island, I believe. Uh, the Island, and it uh, stars Bear Grylls, who's an Australian survivalist. And uh, he's sort of the host of this thing. But they've taken a dozen or so American men, uh, stranded them on this uh, uh, mid-Pacific tropical island, average temperature like 110 degrees every day, giving them two <laughs> cans of water and a machete and said, uh, here are some cameras, good luck. <laughs> and uh, that goes bad for them right away. Yeah. It's a survival situation, <clears throat> not not so much like uh, the survivor thing, which is mostly backstabbing, but this is about leadership and, and uh uh, I found it very interesting and not what you would call a tropical paradise, your mid-Pacific uh, uh, equatorial 112-degree island, you know. Um, so anyway. Oh. Yep. Um, we have, we're going to go to a totally different subject here now. Um, I've heard reports from various people that the jellyfish population happens to be going up around the around the area. People have asked me about it because they're boat talking. I don't have a clue. But we did a little research and uh, have uh, come in contact with uh, Dr. Nick Record of the Bigelow Labs, who is, the uh, I guess we'll call him the area's expert on jellyfish. And I believe we have him online right now. Good morning, Nick. Are you uh, Are you there? Yes, I am. Good oh, morning. Thank welcome. you. I think expert is probably a generous term, but I may be the closest that there is in the region. Better come in contact with you than a jellyfish, I understand. <laughs> well, the, the jury's out on that. Yeah. Uh, I got some uh, stuff to read about that in a little bit. Um, tell us exactly what you do down there. Uh, well, I am an ocean ecosystem modeler, which means I look at all sort of all different parts of the ocean ecosystem, from viruses to whales and everything in between, and um, try to figure out how they're changing in response to things like warming waters, ocean acidification, any kind of changing condition, um, how that affects fisheries, things like that, kind of putting all the pieces together of the ecosystem. So in your world, I would say the world, the words it's all connected are, are just the basics of everything, isn't it? Yeah, oh, for sure. And, um, you know, that that makes it amount to basically a big math problem. So, in fact, a lot of what I do is working out these big systems of equations that, that tell us how things are connected and how they're all going to respond to each other in these complex ways. The ocean is a, a fascinating and complex place. And then uh, magnitudes of uh, what's important. Um, yep, that's right. Yeah. So ideally, you go through an analysis like this and something will emerge like, um, you know, this change is going to have a huge effect on, say, jellyfish or something like that. Are there more jellyfish here than there used to be? That is an excellent question that has been uh, nagging me for a while. Um, I would start with uh, something I like to call the jelly ocean hypothesis. And this is something <laughs> that's been around for a couple of decades now, where some scientists are, are hypothesizing that jellyfish are on the rise globally. And um, that has to do with mostly human-related causes, uh, things like warming and um, nutrient runoff into coastal waters, invasive species, 
possibly overfishing. There's a, you know, a number of things that could that could potentially cause that, and but um, people are still sort of wondering if that's the case or not. So, um, there's a, I, I guess I would say a research on both sides of the argument. There are people who are saying yes, the the ocean is becoming more gelatinous, so to speak, and there are others saying that actually it's it's more of a 20 year 20 or 30 year cycle of, of ups and downs of, of jellyfish, and we're just sort of in the midst of a of one of the ups, and that things will go back down again in the future. Interesting. I I uh, deliver boats, and uh, about a month ago, I was coming back from Virginia. We stopped at the uh, Sandwich Marina, east end of the Cape Cod Canal, and yep. I spoke with a fisherman uh, who fishes Cape Cod Bay. Uh, his boat was Dirty Laundry. And uh, Dirty Laundry fishes uh, offshore lobster traps and, and cod. He can't get uh, more than 200 pounds of cod, and everything shuts down when the whales come. And, of course, Cape Cod Bay is full of whales, so he's pretty much shut down quite a bit of the time. Asked yep. him what he thought about the whales. He kind of uh, thinks they're pretty neat. And he th- his theory was that they're feasting on the jellyfish, which are way more uh, prevalent than they've ever been. That's an interesting theory. I haven't heard that before. This is right whales, I assume? I would assume so, too. But, of course, uh, down in Cape Cod Bay, we got a mix everywhere. Humpbacks, right whales, uh, you know, they're like I call it whale soup as, as we go through it. But right. his, his uh, point surprised me, though, was his idea was, and as a fisherman, I give him credit for uh, his observational powers, uh, the, those whales are particularly feasting on the jellyfish in Cape Cod Bay, he said. That's interesting, especially if that's what he's seeing. I have not come across that someone's uh, hypothesizing that before but i will get in touch with some whale experts and check it out i will say that you know we we get a lot of great information from people who are out on the water um every day like uh, like fishermen and other mariners we've set up this um an, uh, reporting system for jellies actually if you email if you see jellies um if you email a description and the lo- time and location to jellyfish at bigelow.org we can add that sighting to uh, our database and right now with um, with science funding and earth science funding being flatlined and, and cut in the u.s we have to find sort of other ways to collect data especially on jellyfish which are sort of notoriously understudied and so we're we're relying on actually on citizen science reports to collect as much information as we can um, and so that type of information is really valuable I um, always think I, I actually uh, have a degree in biology, and uh, I always wonder uh, uh, who are you eating and who eats you. Um, who eats jellyfish? Just in general, is, uh, um, they're known for their poisonous uh, sting, their protection. Uh, you know, who eats jellyfish as a regular? Yeah, yeah. So um, they they are often seen as a nuisance, but they do have a, an ecological role, and there are a lot of species that that eat them. Uh, mola molas, for one. Uh, dogfish actually eat what's called comb jellies, which is a little bit different from the sort of standard jellyfish you see. It's a sort of like a gelatinous ball that can range in size from sort of a grape up to like a large fist size. Hmm. Um, and they're act- actually a major part of dogfish diets. So one of the ways that we track that species is looking at the stomach contents of dogfish that have been caught. I should imagine jellyfish don't last very long in the digestive system. 
That's probably, well, they are mostly water. Yeah, they probably break down pretty quickly. That's probably but, why uh, they, they don't see them in whales very much. Yeah. Well, the the um, what what your friend saw is pretty interesting because what the behavior if whales are following you know, big aggregations of jellyfish, that is telling. I mean, it either means the whales are going after the jellyfish or they're going after the same thing that the jellies are going after. So ah. Lots of jellyfish eat copepods, yeah. which is a small crustacean, and right whales also eat copepods. So it's possible that, um, you know, that they're going after the same prey that the jellyfish are, but you'd need probably a targeted study to, to sort that out. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. Yeah, and uh, my point to him was, of course, they're there because the soup is so thick and rich. And he says, well, it's not just the the little things, uh, you know, the uh, krill. He says they're they're feasting on the jellyfish. I was quite surprised. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. It's possible. I, um, uh, I don't know enough about whales to I say love, one way or another. I'm uh, glad you threw in mola molas, which are uh, ocean sunfish. Yep. Um, eat them as well. I hit one of those with a 44-foot sailboat a couple of summers back on my Oops. way to Nova Scotia. Boat oh, was gosh. on autopilot, ran it right over, and, and didn't seem to bother it a bit. Yeah, um, they can get up to many hundreds of pounds, and they're pretty rugged. Yeah, and they're I hope all, your boat didn't take too much damage either. No, and they're also uh, uh, more of a southern creature that gets a little lethargic in our cold water, aren't they? Uh, yeah, you do see them just sort of lounging around at the surface, but they're not—they're not uncommon in the Gulf of Maine, actually. I—I I usually see one or two each each summer that I'm out. Yeah. And this summer, I've heard reports that there are quite a few of them out there, which could be another indication of a you know increasing jellyfish. I tell you, man, we say, you know, uh, more than the used to be, and how do we know about used to be? Of course, we uh, do have history and, and data and stuff, but I've been going to sea for, what, 30-odd years, and it seems different to me over that short time. Yep. Well, you know, over this past 10 years in particular, the Gulf of Maine has been warming faster than something like 99% of the rest of the ocean. It's, a, it's an almost unprecedented rate of warming and that's mm. brought with it all kinds of changes in the ecosystem you know everything from possibly from these increases in jellyfish to um, you know we had a long fin squid fishery pop up in 2012 almost overnight and then of course you have things like um, you know the the uh, closure of the shrimp fishery of course they're a cold water species and they're right at the southern end of their range so as things get warmer they they just don't do as well there's a tragedy mm, yeah yeah. Um, things is changing, and uh, the uh, biggest fishery we have, which is so-called sustainable uh, nowadays, is the lobster fishery. And, uh, you know, uh, delivering boats, I noticed that all the lobster traps to the southern to here are mostly gone. You know, um, those people are out of business. The, their water has changed. Their lobsters, uh, you know, ain't what they hope. And, and uh, so anyway... Uh, Am I right to worry about the future here in the Gulf of Maine changing so fast, as you say? Well, I would say that, um, you know, this this 10-year warming rate that we've had over the past 10 years, it's unlikely that it would continue at that rate for the next 10 years. What's, what's more likely is that we'll sort of, um, you know, we'll sort of adjust to a higher temperature, and there will be changes. There, there'll be good news and bad news, I think. Um, without trying to, without speculating too much, you know, some some new fisheries will open up and some will will really struggle. I don't know specifically about enough about lobster to say 
you know, how long that's going to be such a robust fishery. There are people speculating that, you know, as things get warmer, that species is going to move north as well. There's still plenty of cold water in Maine right now, so I think they're doing okay for now, but probably down the road, I mean, things things could cool off temporarily, but the long-term prognosis is for warming. Read a thing about uh, ocean acidification, and the, the guy was making the point that these stresses on uh, different creatures are like taxes. You know, if you've got to work too uh, hard to turn uh, uh, basic seawater into your, uh, your uh, I'm sorry, acid water into your basic uh, uh, hard shell, uh, temperature, another stress, you know, and all these stresses uh, amount to taxes that the organisms may or may not be able to pay successfully, you know. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. And what it comes down to is, is you know, if they're, it's how much they have to put into to reproduce. And if they're paying more taxes, then they have less left over to, um, to sort of make the next generation. Which is the purpose and meaning of life, uh, is what I, my degree in biology taught me. I don't know about you, man. <laughs> yep. Well, uh, Nick, um, this is Alan. I, I don't have a degree in biology. Um, I know what jellyfish are, but I don't know one from another other than there are different kinds. So if I see some somewhere, do I do it? take a picture and note the time and place and send the uh, photograph to jellyfish at org. That would be great. Um, and uh, if you don't have a camera, just a description would be fine. Um, I know. Yeah, that's, that's, right now that's all we have to, um, to collect information yeah. on jellyfish in coastal Maine. You're trying to start, With, set up a, a database, right? Yep, we're going to set up a database. It's a collaboration between Bigelow the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and the Island Institute. We're all sort of working together to bring this together, and I'm I'm uh, aggregating the database. Um, yeah, I mean, this citizen science data is it's it's actually sort of a new a new science. There are new methods being developed to um, to deal with the data, even though it's not as quality controlled as sort of your standard survey. There's a nice program out of GMRI, uh, that's the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, called Vital Signs, where they um, they sort of train students to be citizen science, scientists, and they're gathering data on invasive species throughout Maine. Mm-hmm. And so we've partnered with them and also the Island Institute to, uh, to sort of get the word out. And hopefully we'll get enough information to track, you know, be able to answer that question, are jellyfish increasing? Where are they increasing? Which types are they? Jellyfish itself is um, its a ill-defined term. Some people just think of the sort of conventional jellyfish like lion's manes and moon jellies, which is what we see a lot. But there's also, like I mentioned, comb jellies, which is a totally different phylum. I mean, it's, they're, less un, they're less related to, uh, to jellyfish than humans are to comb jellies. But people lump them together because they're, they're gelatinous. They float around. They look similar. They do similar things in the ocean. There's also something called salps, which are uh, another gelatinous species. Um, Siphonophores, you've probably heard of a Portuguese man-o'-war, which is a bit different than your standard jelly. These are all gelatinous species, and they all do different things, but they all um, sort of fall under that umbrella term of jellyfish. And um, if we could sort sort out who is where, who's on the rise, who's on the decline, um, any information we can get to do that will be helpful. When, uh, uh, let's imagine jellyfish uh, 
come to an area and, and ruin the recreational potentials of it. Uh, are there uh, ways that we can make them go away? You keep saying jelly this and jelly that, and I keep thinking peanut butter. You know. <laughs> well, you know, it's true that there are some jellyfish fisheries out there, mostly in Asia. So, you know, if uh, if we're particularly enterprising, we could be eating peanut butter and jellyfish sandwiches in the future. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to ask you that before. Do people eat jellyfish on purpose? And yep, there Asians? are a few species out there that, there's, that there are fisheries for. Um, like I said, mostly in Asia. I've never tried one myself, but but you're right, and it's not just uh, it's not just recreation that they do to damage to. They can do damage to aquaculture. They are notorious for clogging uh, the the cooling pipes of power plants, and they can shut down nuclear power plants. And they also compete with fish, so they have a, a potentially a negative impact on fisheries like fin fish. They're they're competing for the same prey resource, mm-hmm. so it's not just it's not just beachgoers who are concerned about these. Pretty cool. Do you get lots? Uh, you get uh, water time as part of your job. You know, I've gotten a lot in the past. Uh, these days, I don't get out as much as I used to. But um, you know, I worked as a technician for quite a few years, and you know, we would be out for many weeks at a time, sometimes year round. But I have to say, these days, most of what I'm doing is trying to secure funding to answer these questions because, uh, as you know, the science funding is getting tighter and tighter all the time. And so, you know, I put I put my efforts there, and then, you know, the, I'll hire technicians to go out to sea. So as I, as I get older and um, sort of play the game more, I'm more of a desk scientist, unfortunately. I don't want to allege any conspiracies or anything, Dr. Nick, but I've heard on a different kind of uh, radio that you can hear on the uh, air around America here that uh, scientists are totally corrupted by their need for funding, and that's why they're putting out all this uh, irrelevant data about the warming of the oceans and the earth and all that stuff, trying to scare people to death just so they can have money, Um, which I, again, don't... uh, um, I'm thinking this uh, global warming denying won't age well. Over time, uh, uh, hypothesis is always open. The scientific method, uh, you know, uh, truth will come in the end, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, ultimately, we'll, well, and we're already seeing the effects of climate change now, and I think more and more people are uh, sort of acknowledging that. Um, but, but part of it, too, is a communication issue and how well um, scientists are able to communicate this information. And, you know, I, I would, if people are, are mistrusting of scientists, I would just encourage them to, uh, to get to know some scientists because we're not, you know, actually, I think everyone is a scientist. You know, we, ought, we are all asking questions about the world around us. We're all using similar thought processes. I mean, I, this is one thing I've learned, too, working with fishermen out on the water. They're very observant. They're asking questions in a basically in a scientific way, and they, they have insights that oftentimes scientists don't have. And I think if anyone is, is uh, skeptical of scientists, they should just um, talk to some, and, and we, should, we should be talking to, uh, to people as well. I guess what I was asking in a kind of very clumsy way is it's, you know, it's politics to this nowadays, and it complicates everything, like uh, uh, things get kind of stupid around politics nowadays. Yeah, you're right, and it looks like it's you know the um, the sort of anti climate change messaging was a was a pretty calculated effort. 
which is which is unfortunate. Um, but you know, now we have um, the Defense Department saying that climate change is is one of the top threats to uh, the United States national security. We have you know, oil companies are are actively preparing for climate change. So I, you know, I think we I think we are rounding the the uh, the corner with this particular issue. But you're right, politics. Uh, you know, I, politics is is a mystery to me in a lot of ways, but it is a huge part of the equation. Um, as a uh, uh, scientist, uh, you know, uh, at university, uh, friends are studying political science, and what a joke that was. <laughs> so, you know, uh, just as a uh, what would you call it, oxymoron? Yeah, Alan's <laughs> the punny one. I'm I'm into oxymorons. Um, how do you like your job, just in general? Uh, I like it a lot, actually. I wish I were at sea more as much as I used to be, but um, you know, I have two little kids right now, so maybe it's not a bad thing that I'm that I'm on dry land yeah. more often. But yeah, in general, I, I I like it. Favorite part of what you do? What's that? What would that be? I like it all. I mean, I like I like asking the questions and the satisfaction of of not always getting an answer, but you know, getting some form of answer, and then the new questions that come out of that. I like going to see. Um, I, I like working with students and, um, you know, sort of giving talks. And, and uh, you know, we get to travel different places to meet with other scientists. I've been to a few places around the world. The cool thing about having a radio show, Dr. Nick, is you can call about anybody and say, can we talk to you and, and about this and that? And as a scientist, you can ask anybody a question. The whole world, you know, everything's an open hypothesis. That's kind of a wonderful uh, attitude, I would think. Yeah, you know, I think if I could if I could do it again, I might go into radio broadcasting. Oh, uh, I might have uh, should have pursued science. So there, um, <laughs> um, uh, this don't pay a bit. Um, uh, what was the last? I had one more. Uh, well, while you're thinking about that, I have a couple of questions for you, Doctor Nick. Um, did for the for the basic uh, people who are going to uh, send you information on jellyfish. Uh, why don't you describe maybe the two or three most common so people will say, oh, yeah, there's a lion's mane or a moon jelly. What, what do those uh, yeah, most yeah. common so ones look like? Those are the two most common. So the lion's mane is, is um, it's bigger. It's, it's usually like a foot or more across. It has, it's kind of that classical, classic jellyfish look with long um, dangling tentacles. Um, the moon jelly is, is usually smaller. It's sort of um, symmetrical four ways, if you know what I mean, it's sort of divided into uh, quarters. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has really short tentacles, has four really short ones that you might not even see. It's more clear, too, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, it's more clear. The lion's mane is sort of a a solid part in the middle. Yeah, I'm told it's reddish or orangish. I'm actually colorblind, so I have a really hard time. okay. (laughs) The ones I've seen were reddish. But I think, and I think the moon jelly is almost uh, like a, like a purplish. But oftentimes it's clear enough that it just appears the color of the water around it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the the comb jellies, which are, they almost look like peeled grapes. They're they're sort of ball shaped blobs of jelly. Um, and the larger ones are, they could get as big as the size of your of your fist, or maybe a little bigger. And the smaller ones are like the size of grapes. Great. So the uh, the other question was, um, 
I sent you a copy of a, a radio show we had years ago with a merchant marine who saw, a, I don't know what you call it, a, a congregation of jellyfish off the coast of Madagascar. Uh, yeah. They, they were all glowing purple and obviously coming together for some sort of reason. Um, I was surprised that they, uh, I figured they can move around, but the fact that they can have some sort of a uh, cognition of wanting to move in a certain direction, all huge numbers of them like that to, uh, uh, yeah, to yep. do that. Uh, how they don't have a brain. They don't even have a really a nervous system. Do they? How do they? How do they figure that out? <laughs> well, they can detect uh, chemicals in the water. So, so there are two. There are two mechanisms. One's biological, so where they're detecting. Um, it could be a chemical cue from prey, for example, and just swim towards it just like a stimulus response type of thing. And the other one is, is physics, actually. that You know, you look at the ocean, um, it looks flat, but it's actually, you know, there's all kinds of currents and it's moving around underneath. People who have spent time on the water, of course, know this. And there are convergence zones. So the same currents that cause plankton, uh, you know, what jellyfish might be eating to converge can cause the jellyfish as well to converge. So there could be a physical mechanism pushing them together, too. Oh, and sometimes they, those two, the biological and the physical, work together and can create these big aggregations. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, thank you very much, Nick. We have another phone call that we need to go to in just a minute. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Um, I hope to get some emails on uh, jellyfish at bigelow.org. Oh, yes, jellyfish at bigelow.org. Thank you very much, Nick. Yep, thank you. Take care. Thank you. We are doing boat talk this morning. Uh, I've been talking jellyfish so far, and uh, we haven't given the phone number much. Uh, we got on the phone, do we think, Alan? Uh, is Beatty from Camden on the phone now? Yes, let's go to that. Good morning, Beatty. Hi. I was hoping to keep the jellyfish guy. Oh. Um, but anyway, uh, I've been following this and sort of collecting articles for quite a while thinking about acidification and climate change. And there have been jellyfish explosions around the world, particularly, like he said, pollution. But my question was about acidification. I thought, well, of course it's going to be jellyfish. We'll be eating jellyfish because they don't, I assume they don't depend on calcium as much. And so many other organisms are really having trouble and will be increasingly having trouble with building the calcium shells, but that may affect bones, too, even though it's not external. You talked about stress. So um, there seem to be these explosions of jellyfish in the Black Sea in particular uh, has a lot more of them. Uh, Black Sea's kind of ahead of the other seas because it's so locked up and not in good shape. Um, so then thinking about, you know, well, are we going to eat jellyfish? And I did look up some recipes online. Uh, Chowder? Well, no, it sounds like it kind of gets kind of hard and, and leathery when you dry You dry them. They buy them in the market. I don't know that much about jellyfish it. Jellyfish jerky. Love it. <laughs> they are nutritious. <laughs> so, yeah, because you know, you're... They're mostly water. There is, there is good stuff there. Yeah, you're and speaking seen, of the chemistry. I have seen a picture of a baby whale eating a jellyfish in a children's book and saying, yum. So somebody actually has thought about that whale thing already. Huh. Um, one more thing I wanted to say. I, I wanted to ask him about the calcium connection acidification because 
I felt that there might really be a strong relation there besides other pollution. But it, just talking about invasive species, um, I just want to caution this invasive species thing that everybody's jumping on. Um, we may really depend on these some of these species in the future. Not that we want to let them knock out everything that's native, but there's also a kind of a it just reminds me of the way people feel about illegal immigrants. I, there's a kind of a huh. feel that isn't good about that. I think it needs to be balanced when we bring on citizen scientists and get them all excited about invasive species. Well, what are the values of these things and why is it happening? Because it's usually us that is, that's why it's happening. Um, some pretty sharp thinking there, uh, BD, especially when you get right down into the chemistry. That's nuts and bolts stuff. I think yeah, you're on so to maybe he'll call back and say something about calcium. Yeah, I think you're on to something. We're running out of time yeah. this morning here. And, uh, Thank you. I've but, got a couple of uh, jellyfish things I can uh, throw in here myself. But BD, uh, you can probably use that website to contact him, though, yeah. jellyfish at bigelow.org. Yeah. Yeah. But thanks right. for your call. Yeah, bye. Bye. Elaine Shute from uh, Monday's On the Wing uh, music program here uh, gave me this book called uh, Safety and Survival at Sea. It's uh, belonged to her father who passed away, and it's an excellent, uh, I love safety and survival and anything uh, to do with the sea, uh, Lee and Lee. And this is uh, basically uh, case studies of a lot of British survivors that they have boiled down into all different categories and includes what to do when you are uh, a man in the water and attacked by sea creatures. Um, jellyfish, for instance, are encountered on almost every long-distance sea swim. I dread their appearance, always clearly visible through one's goggles. One just has to grit the teeth and bash on. I've had wheels on most parts of my body. The lips are the most painful. And several swimmers I know have had to be hospitalized, but I have escaped lightly so far. But from uh, Sister Doris Hawkins, she was a survivor in the life raft of the SS Lacona. They were torpedoed in the war. They were picked up by a British, uh, I'm sorry, a German submarine and then had to let go, and that was attacked later. They prayed their way across and uh, somehow survived. But um, Sister Hawkins, I felt a, a sudden sharp pain in my right hand, which was hanging in the water. A purple jellyfish said to be deadly poisonous had stung me. Its sting, a long, violent, colored tentacle, was wound around my hand, completely detached from the jellyfish itself. I shook my hand and the sting fell off, but unfortunately it hit one of the men and wound round his hand, stinging him in turn. Our hands and arms swelled rapidly, and with a stick, another man beat the jellyfish against the side of the raft and killed it. Sometime later, a third man grasped the end of the stick, which had killed the jellyfish, on which some of the poison must have remained. Immediately, he felt the stinging pain in the palm of his hand, and his arm and... Uh, hand swelled too. The pain was intense and we held our affected limbs in the sea for hours and nothing worse than the pain and swelling occurred. This took several days to subside. These people were under quite a lot of stress to start with and uh, from the same book, the uh, afloat first aid, fish bites and stings. Do we, not handle jellyfish. Can we hold that? We got a phone call. So right. wonder, we'll go to the phone yep. call and then go back to that. We have Gray on the line. Good morning, Gray. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm going to change the uh, the temper of the comments and give you a, a pleasant jellyfish story. Uh, um, Does it involve peanut butter? <laughs> not quite. Good. 25 years ago, roughly, um, when the environment was a little different, uh, we used to, one winter we had just the right amount of snow and the right amount of energy in our bodies, and we'd go 
my Chris and I would go snowshoeing at midnight there when it was really moonlight, full moon. Down we'd go down to the beach and walk around, and it was real cold too. It was like below zero, which we don't get much of around here anymore. And one night we were out about about midnight, and the moon was out, and we were in a little little uh, little eddy on on the beach where the where the Skillings River comes down and water swirls around. And there was a little little pool about a foot and a half in diameter that was being sloshed full by the waves that were coming in. And we noticed these lights in the water, and we watched, and there was a whole crowd of sea gooseberries, which I assume is a cone jellyfish variety. Uh, They're like grapes about, uh, you know, size of a big green grape, and they got lateral lights on the sides. And they were sloshing up into this pool in one side and then sloshing out the other side. They could have, you know, and they appeared to be having some control over their action. And I don't know uh, exactly what's going on, but to us it looked like they were playing with the water. And just like otters sliding down a slide, it was was a really wonderful experience. And I wonder if uh, the uh, population of sea gooseberries, which I believe they flourish in the middle of the winter, has diminished since the waters have gotten warm. Maybe somebody out there knows it. Um, I thought I'd... uh, not all jellyfish sting you and, and are, are something to be horrified by. Anyway, thanks for the show. Thank you, Greg. That's a good one. Thank you. Who's having fun? How? And how do we judge? Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think you or I would have too much fun in a, a tidal pool and below zero weather. But those guys seem to be, they must have some sort of a definite antifreeze in their, uh, in their systems. Mm. The... Uh, First aid for jellyfish, uh, treat it like any topical sting with an ointment. Uh, you cover it with a bandage or a dressing. Uh, do not soak in water and do not rub or itch are the instructions for first aid if you get uh, stung by a jellyfish. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's try to avoid that from the first place. Um, where's your second uh, jellyfish story? Oh, that uh, took care of most of that. Oh, okay. That took care of most of that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, we're gonna have to. Uh, this is a call-in radio show, Alan, and you got the you got your lines mixed. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. Uh, we are doing boat talk this morning, to turn Alan. Off my phone. Carries one of them funny things, and uh, it's hard to say what it's doing. Could be giving you an automatic uh, identification system position uh, for <laughs> the frigate Hermione, which again is approaching Castine this afternoon. Uh, uh, reputed a while back to be 10 miles south of Rockland. Uh, 10 miles south of Rockland, if you look on a map, is actually out in the ocean. Yeah, that's uh, still not, quite a ways out. Not more down towards Portland or anything. That would be uh, uh, more to the western, I believe. When I checked it yesterday, it was sailing at uh, 3.4 moments. Okay, we have Steve Rappaport, so let's go right back to, uh, to Castine. And Steve, good morning, Steve. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Steve. Uh, Alan Sprague and I are here this morning. Uh, Steve Rappaport, i got to introduce him, is the uh, ace reporter for the waterfront section of the Ellsworth American, one of the uh, great um, weekly newspapers of America. So, uh, you know, not just an opinion, they win awards. Uh, and the waterfront section in the Ellsworth American is just outstanding and, and uh, always chock full of stuff like boat talk. You never run out of stuff to talk about, do you, Steve? 
Uh, well, we try not to. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be looking at it wrong if you did. Uh, what are you up to today, buddy? Well, I'm going to be. Uh, I'm trying to get my section finished here at the Ellsworth American, and in pretty short order, I'm going to be heading over to Castine uh, to go out and greet uh, Hermione. And uh, later in the day, I expect to have a chance to get aboard and uh, interview her captain and some of the crew. Excellent. Now, I'm told that uh, uh, this is not going to be just everybody that will line up can board the ship. Um, we'll be limited boarding. Uh, is that correct? Yes. I think today, as I understand it, it's just going to be uh, press and, uh, you know, assorted dignitaries, I guess. And then tomorrow... Um, the ship will be open for public boarding, but uh, it's on a limited basis. Uh, the Castines uh, Historical Society was responsible, uh, I think, for issuing uh, tickets um, that assigned people a time slot for uh, boarding. And I am not sure, but I think those tickets may be sold out already. Cool. Your your son, Elliot Rappaport, former captain of the uh, Maine Maritime schooner Bowden. That is correct. You're not unconnected to tall ships in the Castine waterfront at all. This uh, frigate Hermione is kind of a, a slightly different creature from our average tall ship, though. Is that fair to say? Well, I think that that's very fair to say. It's uh, except for some modern conveniences required uh, to comply with... Uh, international safety laws and what have you. Uh, she's a completely traditionally built uh, 18th century full-rigged ship, and you certainly don't see many of those around. It's a pretty spectacular vessel. And heavily rigged and heavily sparred. It's it's warship. It's, a, again, a, a step up from a, from a merchant ship. Right. Uh, the frigates were built as quick, uh, maneuverable uh, warships, faster and uh, uh, more nimble than the uh, bigger, heavier ships of the line. And we were talking earlier about the two rotating propeller pods. Uh, it has port and starboard back aft, and it's uh, hidden under its uh, uh, butt there for maneuvering nowadays. Of course, uh, lighted as a modern vessel should be as well, but... Um, crewed mostly by volunteers and a uh, small professional crew. Is that true as well? My understanding is it's a crew of about 75, wow. of which about two-thirds are volunteers and uh, a third are professional uh, crew. Nice. The word I hear, too, is they've successfully visited uh, many other ports and everybody has had a good time. They're nice people and... Uh, uh, again, a uh, heck of a sight down in Castine today. Well, it should be a spectacular sight uh, with the ship coming in and uh, tying up at the waterfront. I think even if uh, you can't get aboard, uh, it would be a spectacular uh, sight to see. Steve, what do you? Uh, what's your angle with the captain? What's your What's your uh, best plan of attack there in your interview? Can I ask well, as an interviewer? I'm going to uh, really be talking to him about uh, what, uh, on, 
on this extremely traditional ship, um, what uh, changes they've made that are not traditional to, to modernize the ship. And, uh, I mean, some of those, you mentioned the rotating pods uh, that uh, are connected to generators. There are big electric motors and uh, that drive the propellers that they use for maneuvering in port. Uh, they're powerful enough so that uh, if they need to, they can actually uh, just run uh, the ship at sea and motor, although I don't think they've done very much of that. Um, they have lighting plant on board and hot and cold running water, uh, certainly a lot more comfortable for the crew than the original Hermione was. Do they get to wear polar fleece, or would that be a uh, time-tripping, uh, you know? Uh, we'll, we'll have to find that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd want to be able to wear my polar fleece still. Steve, when you're talking to the captain, I think it would be interesting to find out what he, uh, what his experiences are decking up. Uh, Parking, trying to park that boat in the in the uh, currents that are in Castine. I don't think well, he's probably that, faced that before. That is uh, certainly going to be something to see. They're not arriving, uh, or they're not scheduled to arrive at slack uh, tide, so um, the current should prove uh, a challenge, or could prove a challenge mm -hmm. in any event. We can't wait to see you. We're so happy you uh, took a couple minutes to talk to us on your busy day, Steve. And, and uh, man, we wish we could uh, see through your eyeballs. And, and can't wait to the Ellsworth American, of course, comes out uh, late Wednesday afternoon and on newsstands everywhere uh, from Thursday on. Well, we'll try to have a coverage uh, that will interest folks. We have uh, another reporter who will be covering the shoreside events in Castine and uh, I think we will give people as good an opportunity uh, as possible to visit the ship if they can't see it in person. Nice. Have a good time at it today, Steve. Okay, Mike. I'll have you in mind. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Steve. Steve Rappaport from the Ellsworth American. And once again, their uh, waterfront section is uh, uh, just one of the things I live for every week to uh, find it in the paper and see what's going on. So. I just checked the uh, the AIS um, website, and uh, they haven't updated the uh, location of Hermione. It's still showing it 10 miles south of Rockland. So it's coming this way, but I don't know just about the uh, the ETA yet. Yeah, and we are doing boat talk this morning. Uh, Amy's been driving in the uh, uh, studio there, handling handling yep. the lines for us, Okay, which we appreciate. We're coming up to the end of it, and the we lights do. are flashing. What the heck's going on? We do have on? one call. We only have about three minutes left, so we'll go to quickly to Ian. Good morning, Ian. Good morning. I was just uh, wondering where, what side of the bay the uh, boat was going to be coming up. Um, coming in the uh, traditional... Uh, uh, From the uh, western. Yeah, uh, ships have a lane that they approach uh, Searsport in, and I believe it comes uh, east of Isla Ho, I believe, and then up the bay, pretty much straight shot, like they'd be coming up the Penobscot River. Yep. Yeah. Uh, All right, well, it's a little east. foggy out, but we'll try to see it. Yeah, and again, uh, uh, time tripping sight, you know, is the way I look at it, uh, time tripping. So let alone just a sight in general. Um, 
the uh, Hermione thing uh, hopefully will show up on the TV news tonight. Haven't heard a lot about it in advance. I'm surprised. Uh, again, you you uh, talk to some people and and uh, they're not sure about the timing of it. And uh, you know the publicity is uh, you know it's a funny thing. Depends on who you talk to. The awareness of this, I find. So um, I'm thinking she's going to make a big splash in uh, Maine today, though one way or another. And uh, we've been doing boat talk this morning. Talked to uh, Dr. Nick. What was Dr. Nick's last name? Dr. Nick Record. Record, yes. Of uh, Bigelow Laboratories. Bigelow the- Labs. And uh, Dr. Nick was the jellyfish fellow, but uh, just an a interesting scientist in general. Yep. Yep. Um, and again, uh, uh, on this afternoon, uh, four, 4 o'clock, is the uh, reputed... Arrival time down to Castine, Maine. She'll be there all day tomorrow, too. And uh, Castine's not on the road anywhere. you got to go there on purpose, but you might want to swing by today. So yeah. Today or tomorrow. Yeah, you? as I said to the Harbor Master, Sarah, as we uh, do a good job chatting on the radio, we'll get a couple other people, a thousand other people to come to town, Sarah. Won't that be wonderful? And then we all burst out laughing. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't get to uh, tell you about the new Walt Disney movie that's coming out in next year, but we'll get to that next month anyway. Thanks to uh, Amy down in the engine room for uh, keeping things on course. And uh, stay tuned for Rich Hillsinger coming up next with On the Wing here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor and around the world at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes